Imagine a world where the internet was still in its infancy, a realm waiting to be explored, manipulated, and perhaps even liberated. It was against this backdrop that a group of visionary hackers emerged, pushing the boundaries of what was possible both technically and ideologically. We've covered a lot of hackers and the associated groups in the show. We've traveled from the emergence of networking to modern cyber warfare, but it's not very often that we can follow the evolution of one group that grew up in tandem with the internet as we know it. Today, I want to talk a bit about the secrets and the not-so-secrets of a group that has left an indelible mark on the digital landscape. I'm inviting you on a trip through an episode that takes us back to the genesis of cyber activism, where code met counterculture and innovation blended with subversion. I'm John Cordes, and for my first episode back, I'm inviting you to come with me to ask the question, what the shell is the cult of the dead cow? The Cult of a Dead Cow, often abbreviated as CDC, wasn't just a hacking group. It was a gathering of brilliant and innovative minds with a mission to challenge authority, promote free speech, and maybe inject a healthy dose of chaos into the establishment. It's a group that's frequently associated with the creation of the term hacktivism, and they've been the inspiration of many a hacker, even going so far as to be a template for some of the characters that you might know or love in TV and movies. In today's episode, we're going to start by traveling back to the 1980s, a time when communicating across the internet was still a challenge. Hell, access to the internet in general was difficult, so when you formed a community, it meant quite a bit more. And that's something that I want you to keep in mind here. I think that there's this amplification of emotions, of causes, and of community that happened back then precisely because of how non-trivial it was to be present online at the time. It's not like today, where I can pop online and find a subreddit, or even like it was in the 90s when you could just search for a chat room or download IRC. Finding these communities, let alone establishing them, was a challenge so when you had something like that, you held on. Let's set the stage by talking a little bit about how a community like the Cult of the Dead Cow communicated, and how it started. Back then, you used what were called bulletin board systems, or BBSs, to establish small communities. Bulletin board systems were the primary mode of digital communication during that age, and it allowed for everything that this little group of hackers could want. A typical BBS often connected through a command terminal, and gave the users capability to do things like upload and download software, read news or zines, and chat. So that's the framework of how the communication could operate here. What's interesting to me is recalling some of the stories that I've heard about this time. You see, back then, not everyone had an automatic connection. Connecting to the internet had, up until around here, required the use of an actual handset phone, dialing the connection number and placing it on top of the modem to open the line. It wasn't until the mid-80s that modems developed to a point that allowed software on a computer to pick up an incoming connection, answer the phone, and then hang up the call when the connection was complete. And I know there are listeners of all age ranges on the show. I've talked with other industry professionals, talked to listeners who are in college, 
And I want to use that as a preface so I can say that I think it's necessary to bring this up. If you were confused by that line about how software would hang up the phone, I just need you to understand that for a long time, phone and data ran on the same connection, and it was not possible for many people to have an active internet connection and a phone call at the same time. So this development really streamlined access in a way that actually helped many people. And if, like me, you had siblings during this time, you got into many fights because someone picked up the phone while you were online and it completely ruined whatever it was you were doing. But I think I've gone off on that tangent long enough, so let's get back to it. We've set the stage at around 1984, we'll say, and that's when the Cult of a Dead Cow is believed to have been formed. Hacker groups were forming up left and right around this time. There was, and still kind of is, I guess, this sci-fi romanticism about the hacker underground. Depending on what you were watching or what you were reading, it offered an escape from the world proper to a community that really just got it. Or maybe it dangled the idea of social and societal change with the application of your skill set. There seemed to be something to latch onto for everyone. Anyone who was slightly misplaced, whether you were a script kitty or maybe a hacker elite. These early days were marked quickly with notoriety for the small group's mix of technological prowess and playful antics. The initial forming of people included names that many of us know, like Omega, Sardistic, and Oxblood. And they painted a picture of a group that was as much about pushing buttons as they were about pushing boundaries. So I guess you could say they were pushing buttons for machines and for people. But what set the CDC apart from the myriad of hacking collectives that sprung up during that era? It was their unique blend of it all. The tech skills, the political activism, the unapologetic attitude, it really seemed to make them stand out from a crowd. They believed in hacking for a purpose, exposing vulnerabilities, sparking public discord, and challenging the status quo. And they did so with flair, releasing a series of hacking tools that weren't meant to just be impressive in their technical execution, but also in their impact on the digital landscape. Joseph Men, who literally wrote the book about Cult of a Dead Cow, gave a talk that touched on some of this at the 2021 DEF CON Red Team Village. And he has a point that I very much liked. He described how, because so many kids wanted access to the internet and couldn't get it from their parents, the only way to do so was either illegally or very much in the gray. So, at the get-go, a lot of the hacker groups, CDC especially, were forced to establish a moral code of where their line was because they had already crossed one to get started. That moral code and ethical boundary wasn't the same across the entire group, but it would lead a lot of impact that it had as many members started to think about where and how they wanted to use their talents. And before we really get into how they used those talents, let's start with a little bit of an intro to some of those big names that I read off earlier. A man named Kevin Wheeler is considered by Joseph Men to be the group's founder. It's believed that Kevin, who grew up in Texas, started the group as he participated in the BBS boards of the time. He would often trade, share, and hoard cracked versions of software that he could take and use or even just distribute. And as the group started to settle into something more rigid, Wheeler would end up naming it after what he believed to be, quote, the unpleasant hind part of the most iconic Texas industry. And thus, the hacker known as Swamp Rat came to create the name Cult of a Dead Cow. Misha Kubeka, 
also known as Omega, is often considered to be another one of the founding members of CDC. He was a key figure in the group's activities and contributed to hacking tools and writing influential texts on the culture in general. Josh Buckbinder, known as Sardistic, was another prominent member. He was known for his technical skills and his involvement in creating one of the group's most prominent hacking tools, Back Orifice. We'll get to that a little bit later, but it's incredible the amount of work that he did. Oxblood Ruffin. He's a Canadian hacker, and I think that's partly why internally he was referred to as a group's foreign minister. Ruffin was one of the people here who really embraced the societal impact that hacktivism could have. He has never stopped being active in human rights conferences, as well as the typical tech conferences that you'd expect from someone like this. His real name is Joel Fur, and he was an early member of the CDC and played a crucial role in shaping the group's philosophy. That philosophy is going to be important later, and he was an advocate for digital rights, privacy, and online free expression. Those are just four of the early members. We'll touch on some of the other members as well later on in the episode, but I think I wanted to lay the groundwork that this started as a small group that wasn't just about hacking for the sake of it. They had a philosophy that revolved around using technology as a tool for social change. I mean, they also did share cracked games and software, but what do you expect? As I mentioned earlier, they were pioneers in the concept of hacktivism, using their technical skills to challenge oppressive regimes, fight for online privacy, and highlight the importance of free expression in the digital realm. So now that we have a small glimpse into who they are, let's start a little bit about what they actually did to gain the notoriety that came with it. One of the first times the group really began to make ripples was in the early 1990s, when they decided, much like many groups before and many groups after, the Church of Scientology was to be their target. Now, for this next part, I want to let you know that you can go to the Cult of the Dead Cow website, cultdeadcow.com, and find the communications that they would release. They keep an archive of everything they put out there. So, on June 4th, 1995, there was a communication published at 7.19pm from Swaprat. I'll read it off to you right now. It says, quote, for immediate release. For more information, contact srat at cascade.net. And on a side note, I do wonder if that email is still valid. A statement from Cult of the Dead Cow, CDC Communications. It is our belief that L. Ron Old Mother Hubbard is to be held accountable for the deaths of thousands of innocent men, women, and children in the killing fields of Phnom Penh, as we suspect that Pol Pot was a Scientologist. We believe that L. Ron Hubbard is actually none other than Heinrich Himmler of the SS, who fled to Argentina and is now responsible for the stealing of babies from hospitals and raising them as super soldiers for the purpose of overthrowing the US federal government in a bloody revolution. We fear plans of a Fourth Reich to be established on our home soil under the vise-like grip of oppression known as Scientology. In order to preserve our way of life and keep the torch of freedom lit for future generations, we feel it's our duty as responsible world citizens to declare war on the so-called Church of Scientology. As future developments occur, we will broadcast them to the free world as soon as possible. Thank you for your time. S. Rat. Fearless Leader. 
Ultimately, not a lot is really known about the campaign in terms of how serious it was and what they did. I'd imagine it was along the lines of data harvesting and service interruption, but there's always a possibility that it stretched out even further than that. I wasn't able to find much about it, even looking for communications after that. Let's flash forward a year or so, because in 1996, a crucial piece of hacker history happened. The publishing of the essay titled, The Conscience of a Hacker, or as I think many other people know it, The Hacker Manifesto. A hacker by the name of The Mentor published this manifesto after his own arrest, and it was amplified by many of the hacker zines at the time and many of the groups, along with the CDC. Honestly, I think we could use the manifesto as a starting point for many episodes just delving into its impact, but the down and dirty of it is that it posited that there is a point to hacking that extends beyond the selfish desires to steal, damage, exploit, or harm other people. And that technology should be used to broaden our horizons, not constrict it. There was this idea that there was a responsibility to use hacking to try to keep the world free. In a word, hacktivism. I think I'd like to continue to move up the timeline to the late 90s with what was perhaps one of the more famous accomplishments of the group. It was the development of a tool called Back Orifice. Back Orifice was one of the first major controversies surrounding this group. The tool itself, sometimes shortened to BO, was something that enabled a user to gain complete control over a computer that was running Windows. So at the time, that would have been control over Windows 98, maybe 95. Perhaps more important than that initial statement was it allowed it to happen remotely. And the name Back Orifice is a play off of a piece of software that Microsoft currently had at the point, which is called Back Office. The group developed it, created it, and used it, but it didn't just stop there. That year at DEF CON, which would have been DEF CON 6, I think, it was revealed to the public and handed out on CDs the weekend of August 1st. So they had one of the best mic drop moments in DEF CON history by showing up with the easy-to-use tool, handing it out, and forcing Microsoft into a corner to fix their operating system. See, when I was researching Sir Distic, I found his view on the tool, and it was, quote, BO was supposed to be a statement about the fact that people feel secure and safe. Although there are wide, gaping holes in both the operating system they're using and the means of defense they're using against hostile code. I mean, that was my message. It's even been reported that Serdistic's claim was allegedly privately commended by some of the employees and engineers at Microsoft. The tool itself was a Trojan horse kind of virus. This meant that the standard way in which it operated was that it was meant to be something disguised as a legitimate program or tool, and opened by the victim. Nine out of ten times here we're talking about phishing. Phishing, you know, that thing that you have to take an annual training on every year, because even now, 25 years later, people still don't get that you shouldn't click or open anything that gets sent to you in email without knowing what it is. Once it was opened, a set of scripts or exploits would open the ports that allow for remote connections to the internet and allow for the remote attackers who were there waiting to connect in and get even more access. In their official release of a tool, they would say, quote, that the main legitimate purpose for BO is remote tech support aid, employee monitoring, and remote administering. Not that back orifice won't be used by overworked sysadmins, but hey, we're all adults here. Wink. Back Orifice is going to be made available to anyone 
who takes the time to download it. And this didn't go without Microsoft trying to discredit the CDC. I want to read a bit of the interactions that occurred in the forms of Microsoft press release regarding the situation, interspersed with the CDC's actual rebuttal that can be found on their website. It's a really entertaining read, and if you don't want to hear me listen to it, skip forward about a minute, and you can go read it on the website. But I'm going to be flipping back and forth between what Microsoft said and what the CDC came back with. It's honestly pretty funny. So let's go. We'll start with Microsoft. On July 21st, a self-described hacker group known as the Cult of a Dead Cow released a tool called Back Orifice and suggested that Windows users were at risk from unauthorized attacks. The CDC? Actually, we released it on August 3rd. Incidentally, it's been downloaded at least 35,000 times as of 11.55 p.m. on August 7th. Microsoft takes this security very seriously and has issued this bulletin to advise customers that Windows 95 and Windows 98 users following safe computing practices are not at risk. This is simply false. Our view is no degree of safe computing practices can compensate for the security bugs or lack of functionality in Windows 95 and 98 and Windows NT users are not threatened in any way by this tool. For the present, but remember that the tool has only been around for less than a week, so... According to its creators, Back Orifice is a self-contained, self-installing utility which allows the user to control and monitor computers running the Windows operating system over a network. The authors claim that the program can be used to remotely control a Windows computer, read everything the target user types at the keyboard, capture images that are displayed on the monitor, upload and download files remotely, and direct information to a remote internet site. Back Orifice doesn't do anything that the Windows 95-98 operating system was not intended to do. It doesn't take advantage of any bugs in the operating system or use any undocumented or internal APIs. It uses documented calls built into Windows to do things like reveal all the cached passwords, that includes passwords for websites and dial-up connections, network drives and printers, and the passwords of any application that stores a user password in the OS. Maybe create shares hidden to the user and list the passwords of those existing shares. Or make itself mostly invisible. Backorfice does not appear in the Control-Alt-Delete list of running programs and can only be killed by a low-level process viewer which Windows 95 does not ship with. To their credit, Windows 98 does ship with a process viewer, but it's not installed by default. The truth about Back Orifice. Back Orifice does not expose or exploit any security issues with the Windows platform or the Back Office suite of products. Back Orifice does not compromise the security of a Windows network. Instead, it relies on the user to install it. Back Orifice has nothing to do at all with the Back Office suite. In fact, Back Office Suite only runs on NT, which isn't even supported by Back Orifice. Yet, apples and oranges. CDC would like to know where exactly Microsoft is getting its definition of compromise the security. Back Orifice does not rely on the user for its installation. To install it, it simply needs to be run. Thanks to some actual exploits, there are many ways a program could be run on a Windows computer. Not only without the user's approval, but without their knowledge. And once installed, has only the rights and privileges that the user has on the computer. Mm, that's correct. Once installed, Back Orifice can only do what the user sitting at the computer could do. 
If he has programs that do everything that back orifice does, this includes seeing what's on the screen, seeing what's typed to the keyboard, installing software, uninstalling software, rebooting the computer, viewing stored passwords, viewing and editing the system registry, connecting and disconnecting the machine to other networks, connecting and disconnecting the machine to other network hosts using anyone's username and password, or running arbitrary plugins and programs, which could, of course, employ any manner of exploit or attack. And that's where I'll cut it. There's a little bit more on the website, but I didn't want to drag that on for too long. But if you look at a screenshot of a tool, you can see it would show images and local data from the impacted machine on your own display. It gives you a nice little command window that you could use to send easy commands out across the internet and even gave you a glimpse into the functions that you could have a machine act as, which included, as we said before, or as they said before, the built-in keystroke monitor, packet sniffers, man-in-the-middle facilitators, and more. Now, this might sound bad, but I'm about to make it sound worse, because there's a thing we like to talk about in fret analytics called persistence. When most people not affiliated with cyber hear the word persistence, I think that they think maybe about a salesperson calling over and over, or maybe a lot of unwelcome advances. In this case, it means that even after a reboot or some kind of action taken against it, the malware would just load back up and continue to operate regardless of if you removed it. As I set up before, it needs a low-level process remover to do the job. All in all, on top of the 35,000 times or so that they mentioned earlier, 15,000 more copies of BO were distributed to IRC users by someone who named it info.zip and alleged it as being pretty useful. So imagine this, you're chilling on IRC and someone sends you a link that says, hey, check out this cool tool, and it's info.zip. As soon as you open it, hey, nothing happened. Oh well. But what you don't know is you're compromised. Because unfortunately for them, it was actually just the vehicle for back orifice. You can really see how it started to spread like wildfire. Because at this time, these were all kind of new attacks and tactics. No one really knew to think about it. And it makes sense because of how easy it was to use and how much impact it could have for even the most early of hackers. I've got a little screenshot of a tool on my website, whattheshellpod.com, under the episode transcript, but I'll also post it to the show's Instagram for anyone who wants to see there. You can find that at shell underscore pod. According to that author, Joseph Men, when he interviewed members, there appeared to have been some kind of internal debate about the tool. They knew that a lot of people would get hacked, but they also knew that Microsoft was feeling a bit like they could do no wrong. CDC saw a major gap in security and thought that there was not going to be any security without first being compromised. I wish I could say things were different now, but honestly, that same kicker is still present in a lot of companies today. If you talk to any security practitioner, I think they'd agree that one of the biggest kickers to any security program is always post-breach or a hack. Like it or not, but some places just will not invest money into it until they've seen direct impact on themselves. It's always impossible until it happens to them. You're always so well protected until something happens to you. And here, Microsoft got an early taste of that firsthand. Even today, Microsoft is better than they were, but just last month, the CEO of Tenable accused them of not giving adequate attention to security issues that were found. And again, it was only when they were backed into a corner that the problem was actually addressed. 
after Back Orifice was released, the group was riding a bit of a wave of public notoriety. And honestly, based on what I've read, while they'd use that to further their message, I genuinely don't know that they cared as much about it because that wasn't the main goal of any of their antics, it was change. I'm going to move us up to 1999 because this was when a defining incident of hacktivism would occur. Let's set the stage, because at this point the internet is still pretty lawless and government entities were starting to catch up to everything you could do with this kind of access to information. One such government was China. We've talked about the Great Chinese Firewall briefly on the show in the past, but this was around its inception point. Similar to how they used their physical Great Wall as a shield for their people in the past, the goal the Chinese government set out to create was a digital wall that would shield its citizens from differing and dangerous opinions. Or at least what the government deemed to be differing and dangerous. The hacking community as a whole took this as an attack of freedom of information and privacy. And in particular, the cult did not approve. And it wasn't just them, other groups would join in to help as well. Like the Hong Kong Blondes. All in all, around that time there were claims of disabling a satellite, defacing Chinese government sites, and even infiltration of government computer systems. The Chinese government didn't just shrug these attacks off as children playing with computers either. They ended up creating their own internet task force to monitor and try to squash attempts to spread news or activity of the hacktivists or any other kind of government opposition. On December 23rd of that year, President Zemin actually threatened any of the coders and creators that were a part of this with rather large jail terms if participation continued. As you would expect, the cult being largely overseas, continued its work, going as far as developing an email plugin that would help normal users in China visit banned internet pages. The plugin worked almost like a man in the middle, where it would reach out and log into a proxy server that wasn't blocked, visit the web page, and then email back what was there to internet users in China. The thought process was that, okay, you can censor what I'm seeing on the internet, but if I can still receive an email and there's no introspection there, then what if I use that as my way to see the outside world? It would be like if I was in prison and the guards never checked my letters, but would monitor what I put on TV in the common room. You can control what I'm doing on the TV, sure, but if someone wanted to mail me pictures of the news with the current headlines, in this specific case, there wouldn't be anything stopping them. Not a perfect analogy, I know, but I feel like at the time, it worked out alright. And honestly, I think it was a really creative and innovative solution to this problem. So let's move us up a little bit so I can talk about a couple more modern things. Because there's a lot to cover about the group, and for this episode, I'm just picking out what some of my favorite highlights are. So I want to keep us on track and move us up to the early 2000s. The early 2000s in this case marked for the release of Back Orifice 2000, or BO2K, depending on who you talk to. The press release read, quote, Back Orifice 2000 is a best-of-breed network administration tool, granting sysadmins access to every Windows machine on their network. Using Back Orifice 2000, network administrators can perform typical desktop support duties without ever leaving their desk. Some notable features include Windows NT support, an open plugin architecture to allow for third-party add-ons, strong cryptography to ensure that secure network administration occurs, and open source availability under the GNU public license. So not only did they put this out there, 
they made it so that others could tack onto this and effectively made it modular. It basically operated as an expansion to the tool and an update to the original back orifice, but with support for what was now the newest version of Windows. Remember that yet? Early on when they were talking to Microsoft? Well, here we are. So the CDC lands another blow in their battle against Microsoft to demonstrate the lack of security. Ultimately, that pattern of hacktivism and tool development kept coming after and after, over and over. There were new tools created, new efforts waged in the battle for a free and fair internet, and continuous growth for the group. And the 2010s continued to show activity increases with new members cycling in and out, as you might expect. The collective even manages to continue widespread discussion on the ethics of hacking, the technical merits, and even branches off into some of the more legitimate business sides of cybersecurity. It's really interesting because you can almost see how, as a whole, this group has grown up with the industry. They were there when it was anarchy in the Wild West, and now, years later, we've got people using the skills and experience that the group gave them to try to make public and private change. For example, one of the group's members, Christian Rowe, was able to take his skill set and co-found a company called Veracode. And if that name rings a bell to you, it's because it's a major player in web application security and software security. Hell, I've used this tool before and found it to be incredibly helpful when working with educating developers. You can really see underneath the product the care and concern that they have for identifying vulnerable components of the code and educating the people who need to fix it. But this isn't an ad for that because it's not for the regular user. I'm just trying to illustrate how the cult of a dead cow is having an impact on mainstream cybersecurity professionals. And the group doesn't just continue to work in cybersecurity, as with a lot of communities, as you grow, the more variance you tend to get from what kind of people join in. So you might start to see people who join in the group that had aspirations beyond just being a hacker or being a presence in the cyber world. Maybe even want to make a little bit more large-scale impact. And that all really came to the public limelight when the American people were first introduced to Beto O'Rourke. If you look at Beto's website, you'll see that he self-describes as a, quote, fourth-generation Texan, born and raised in El Paso, where he has served as a small business owner, a city council representative, and a member of Congress. He founded and currently leads Powered by People, a Texas-based organization that works to expand democracy and produce democratic victories through voter registration and direct voter engagement. Powered by People has helped register over 250,000 unregistered Texans to vote since its inception in December of 2019. I think many of us know him from his work in the primaries and his attempt at running for president. But one thing I don't think a lot of people knew was that he was actually a member of Cult of a Dead Cow. And the way this came out was as a part of Joseph Men's book. He agreed to be one of the members that could be named as a part of the process, and others corroborated his involvement with the group. So it's not like he's just claiming to have been a part of it. There are other members that say, yeah, he was here. And while we don't know how much he actually did, it's proof. This is where I want to go back and say how much variety there could be in a group like this as it grows, because while there isn't any direct evidence that suggested Beto had any kind of involvement in the hacking sides of things, he certainly has taken to heart some of the ethical messages and spirited causes that the group really endorsed. Personally, I'd welcome that kind of hacker news into our system, and I thought it was really cool that one of our congressmen was a member of these groups, but for many, it never quite panned out, and he'd ultimately miss his shot as president. 
I do wonder how that would have shaken out on a political stage, though. Imagine if we had landed with a sitting president that had been involved in cyber action against the Great Firewall of China while something like solar winds occurred. It would have been pretty crazy to think about what a response would have looked like from that. That year in 2019, as I've mentioned a few times already, Joseph Men published his book, aptly titled Cult of the Dead Cow. I'm going to include a link to it in the description, but it's definitely worth the read. So now, I want to take it to this past weekend, actually, because I think that at the time I'm recording this, Cult of a Dead Cow is getting ready to go to DEF CON this year and have something really great to share with everyone. This past weekend for you, a future weekend for me, would be DEF CON 31. Sadly, I wasn't able to make it this year, but I know there were a lot of you out there, so maybe you saw this presentation, and if you did, I'd like to hear from you. But Dead Cow is showing up with a new coding framework. This is coming from a Washington Post article that was shared in the show's Discord channel that I saw. And I want to thank the user DeWisco from our Discord, because they posted this, and it actually prompted me to bump this episode up ahead of the original planned episode. And here's a little self-promo, because if you want to maybe get a mid-episode credit like that, or even inspire an entire episode, participate in the show's Discord. The link is in the description, and I'd love to have you. It's the best place to hang out. So like I was saying, the cult is planning to show up and debut a framework for secure social networking. The post article brings up that the goal is messaging and social networking that won't keep a hold of your own personal data. They're using the existence of already out there tools like Signal and Tor to try to bring privacy back into your hands from the people that are scraping every bit of data they can on you. The key foundation here is a secure end-to-end -end encryption that makes decryption and interception that much harder for even nation-state level attackers. Ultimately though, the tough part here, as with any framework adoption, is getting people on board. And I wonder if that's part of a reason we're seeing this as a cult of a dead cow presentation. For lack of a better phrase, they're a name brand, and with that, they bring a line of credibility and fame. I imagine we'll see a lot of interest coming out of this from DEF CON, and potentially even a lot of interference. The idea of more privacy doesn't exactly sit well with free letter agencies and law enforcement, so it could be something that may get a bit of resistance or smearing from that side of the world. I think that for me, Cult of a Dead Cow was a little personal. I remember hearing kind of internet legends from that area when I was young enough to not quite understand it. I remember reading about them as I was first getting back into hacking and security, and now, they're still making ripples in the space decades after they started and continuing to hold on to the very thing that we started the episode discussing, a specific set of ethics and morals about all of it. I'm John Cordes, and I hope this episode gave you a bit of a peek into what the shell, the cult of a dead cow is, and why they're so renowned. If you want to learn more about it, read the book or come into the Discord and have a chat with us. Before we go, I'm continuing one tradition that I started before I took my break, and that's taking a prompt or a question from some of the backlog that I received when I first asked for that at the start of the year. This one comes from a listener named Mackenzie on Instagram, and they asked me, have you ever had a personal kind of uh-oh moment where your cybersecurity skills were put to the test? And so while I was scripting this out, this kind of had me racking my head. For a couple of reasons, I don't think I've had any major blunders that I can recall. And trust me, it's a little hard to try to do that level of introspection and think about, boy, where did I really screw up? But I think I landed on two stories that I can kind of tell here. One was an uh-oh that 
caused my home lab to go down for quite a bit and I'd had to restart the whole thing. And the other one was from my first job in network security. I think for this episode, I'll go with the network security one. This isn't too much of a blunder as a reminder that sometimes the solution in the problem is much simpler than you'd think. I think I was around 23 at the time and working as a network security engineer. We had one kind of appliance that wasn't critical, but it was valuable in making sure that we could manage other vendors' access in and out of where we needed to be. I'm going to keep this vague because the technical details don't really matter and I don't want to spill that out. It's also long enough later that I don't really know if that tool is still in use. Or even if it still exists. But I digress. I was on call that week and around 1am one Sunday morning, I got a page that our appliance was offline. I signed on thinking that I just need to make sure that it failed over and I could continue in the morning, but the failover device was offline as well. So now I've got no access and no way to get it because there's no response from the admin console, no response from a primary, no response from a failover. And because we didn't own the device, I now have to page the vendor. But surprise, surprise, the vendor can't get access to it either. Not very surprising, I know, but we had to do our due diligence. I check with the network engineering team at that place to make sure that it's only our devices and not just a network change that broke access. And after a bit of due diligence, I figure out that early Sunday morning, I need to drive 40 minutes to our data center and check on the device in person. Okay, the device looks all right after I plug in a KVM to check on it. It's online and it's booting and it's showing me the screen that it should be showing. The thing is, I don't have an account that I can really log into with any level of command line access. This level of access was restricted specifically to the vendor. And the vendor wants to troubleshoot, but they're having trouble describing what they want me to do or where I should even be starting. And I kind of get it. They're another younger engineer like myself at the time, and they can't see what I'm doing. And we're both tired. We're both operating on the same time zone. And at that point, it hit me. They can't see it. So long story short, that's how I ended up opening my laptop, starting a WebEx, and pointing it at a KVM. So being the man in the middle for a support engineer for two hours, my laptop staring at the KVM with my webcam operating as the viewpoint. The problem turned out to be a bad config update on their part that accidentally switched the internal and external routing tables. So the device couldn't route outbound and that's why we lost it. We spent way too long trying to figure out a complicated solution, when ultimately it was as simple as a video chat. Looking back on it now, I could probably think of a couple different ways I could have done it better and easier, but early that morning, the brain fog really hurt. I think I'll tell the ever story about my home lab next episode so I don't drag this one on too long, but this was one of those early instances in the field that just stuck in my head. So thanks Mackenzie for asking that question. We'll cover the home lab on a later episode. So that's it for this week. This was the first episode of me getting back into the swing of it. To say that I'm a little scared about returning to the forum is an understatement, but that's all overshadowed by the excitement of it. So if you took the time to listen this far, thank you. If you want to chat about this episode, please join us in the Discord. I love engaging with everyone over there, and the link is in the description. On my website and on my Instagram, you have to actively avoid it at this point. I'm happy to be back, and I think you will be too, because I've got a couple ideas for new content that will really hopefully be something different than what you're used to, and help me try some fun projects to avoid the level of burnout that I was concerned about before. So, to sign off, I'll just say thank you, 
especially to those of you that are still supporting me on Patreon. There were a bunch of you that I think knew I'd be coming back before even I did. So, JS, Steven, Kilby, Frank, Jay, Adon, Ben Sweetnam, Ben M, John, Chris Finnick, Pseudo, and RKAFLD, VXUB. Oh, right. And last but never least, I use Pot of Greed to draw free additional cards for my deck. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It truly means the world to me. If you want to join the ranks, you can find me at patreon.com slash whatvichelle. So let's keep this truck rolling and I'll see you all next episode.